Welcome everyone to Weekly Creep. Hey everybody. It's your host, Dulce and Adam. Wait, Thanks. no, I'm supposed to say. Hello, creeps. Okay. I'll edit that back to you eventually. Okay. Alright, so we have some stories for you. And we're not going to dilly-dally anymore. And we'll just jump right into it. Because that's what you guys are here for. Okay. What have you got? I took a lot of time on this. Like a lot. It may run long, but I read pretty fast. So I don't think so. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, I typed it up all nice and neat, you know, because it's a really good story. Like compelling. Okay. Cool. All right. I'm going to stop jacking you off. I'll tell you what's going on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, trigger warning. There's some real heavy content in this episode. I think this is an important story. It shows how justice systems can fail and the extent of how humans are scarier than the cryptids or the ghost. Humans can camouflage the best because they can hide behind guises of kindness or smiles. Another reason why this is important is because there are still people out there who believe that the hunting of women is sensationalized, that it's not a real issue And there's no reason for women to fear walking to their cars alone at night or even turning down a man's advances. Let me explain why this is false with some statistics. All right. Okay. Nearly one in five women and one in 71 men in the United States have been raped at some time in their lives. Wow. Including completed forced penetration, attempted forced penetration, or alcohol, drug, facilitated, completed penetration. They really break this stuff down. Most female victims of completed rape, which is 79.6%, experience their first rape before the age of 25. Jesus. 42.2% experience their first completed rape Before the age of 18, the self-reported incident of rape or sexual assault more than doubled from 1.4 victimizations per 1,000 people aged 12 or older in 2017 to 2.7 in 2018. Based on data from the survey, it is estimated that 734,630 people were raped threatened, attempted, or completed in the United States in 2018. Despite the increase in self-reports of rape and sexual assault, there was a decrease in reporting to police from 2017 to 2018. 40% of rapes and sexual assaults were reported in 2017, but only about 25% were reported to police in 2018. So that's really scary. Yeah. So assuming, well, like if you were to assume that everybody was being honest, you know, or you had an abundance of willing participants, then you could look at these and be like, okay, this is close to what it could be. But the nature of this kind of violence is that it's, 
it's very personal and it's safe to assume that people wouldn't be inclined to share these experiences yeah yeah okay i also want to share a short article on a study that was conducted to see if men are encouraged to view women as prey because i found one and it is terrifying it's called are men socialized to prey on women how men are encouraged to see themselves as predators and their mate as prey the recent flood of sexual allegations and the hashtag MeToo movement have led to the largest national conversation on sexual misconduct in history. Every day, the list of powerful men accused of engaging in sexual assault or harassment grows. One word that has popped up again and again when describing these men's behavior is predatory. The term sexual predator is certainly not a new one, but in the past, it was usually relegated to serial rapists and pedophiles. In the current discussion, the term is being used in a broader way to describe a general pattern of unwanted romantic advances and harassment. The idea that men are equated to predators and their object of attraction equated as prey is not a new one. In fact, it is a metaphor commonly used to describe dating relationships more generally especially heterosexual relationships. Just take a look at some of these examples from popular songs and movies. The first example is the song Animals by Maroon 5. Baby, I'm praying on you tonight. Hunt you down, eat you alive, just like animals. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty on the nose. Yeah. In the 80s or earlier, Hungry Like a Wolf by Duran Duran. Woman, you want... Me give you want to give me a sign and catch my breathing even closer behind, stalked in the forest too close to hide. I'll be upon you by the moonlight side. I'm on the hunt down. I'm after you. Smell like I sound. I'm lost in a crowd and I'm hungry like the wolf. And I actually know I didn't know the Maroon Five song, but I know and love the Duran Duran song. This one's a little longer. This is from a movie called Swingers, describing how a man should pick up a woman. This character, so I'm going to read the characters' names and what they say, right? Mm -hmm. Trent, you know what? You're like a big bear with claws, with fangs. Sue, big fucking teeth, man. Trent, with big fucking teeth on you. And she's just like this little bunny, just kind of cowering in the corner. Sue, shivering. Trent, yeah, man, you got these claws and you're staring at these claws, man. And you're thinking... How am I supposed to kill this bunny? Sue, you're poking at it. You poking at it. Trent, yeah, you're not hurting it. You're just gently batting the bunny around. You know what I mean? The bunny's scared, Mike. The bunny's scared of you. Sue, and you got these fucking claws, man. Trent, you got these fucking claws and these fangs, man. And you're looking at your claws. And you're looking at your fangs and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what to do, man. I don't know how to kill the bunny. With this, I don't know how to kill the bunnies, man. <laughs> well. Some might argue these descriptions are harmless, but they don't actually teach men that they don't actually teach men or encourage them to prey on women. But psychological research shows that metaphors are more than just words. 
They make people see abstract concepts in concrete, simplified ways. As a result, just being exposed to metaphors can unconsciously alter people's behavior. My colleague and I recently decided to test if this men as predator and women as prey metaphor of dating is harmless or not. In our study, men and women of various varying ages read a passage that described a man on a first date with a woman. Half the participants were randomly assigned to read a neutral reading, version of this reading. The other half read a version that included several references to the men as predator and women as prey metaphor. For example, instead of referring to a night on the town, the metaphor version stated a night on the prowl. And rather than saying he enjoyed to get to the get to know you phase of dating, the metaphor version stated he enjoyed the chase. Okay. Mm -hmm. After the reading, all participants completed questionnaires designed to measure their attitudes about rape. The results indicated that there was no significant difference for women who read the neutral and metaphor versions of the reading. But the results for the men in our study was quite different. Men who read the metaphor-laced reading were significantly higher in beliefs that perpetrate rape. Example, women who are raped while drunk or sexually dressed ask for it. If a girl doesn't fight back, it's not rape. Women often lie about being raped. Then women who read, men who read the neutral reading. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the men who read the metaphor version are also most li more likely to indicate that they would engage in rape if given the chance. Jesus. Yeah. So like, it, it's almost like as soon as they were exposed to that metaphor version, something turned on their head that made like... Like this is fair game. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that, in, that made them feel like they were actual predators. Yeah. The implication of these findings is alarming. Just, just a few minutes of exposure to these metaphors was enough to encourage men to see themselves as sexual predators and women as their sexual prey. This is especially concerning given how the pervasiveness of the men as predator and women as prey metaphor. It appears in popular movies, songs, even children's cartoons. Now that you know the statistics, the next time you go to work, look around and know that there are victims among you. When you go to your next family reunion, know that they are there too. This is a subject that's very personal and hugely traumatic. It shapes the way a person behaves and thinks. Now let's discuss a human whose life was cut short because they were objectified and dehumanized just because they were born female. This is a story of Junko Furata, or otherwise known as a concrete encased high school girl. That's what the, literally what they called her on the newspaper, in the newspapers. Concrete encased new high school girl. High school girl. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue like the Scranton Strangler or something like that. Yeah, yeah. In 1989, Junko Furata was attending school at Yashio Minami high school in Masato, Japan. Furata was born on November 22nd, 1972, so she had just turned 17. She made good grades, didn't party, 
had lots of friends, and had been working part-time twice a week at a plastic molding factory in Yoshio City in the Saitama Prefecture since, since October 1988. In order to earn the travel expenses she planned for her graduation trip, Junko also just accepted a part-time job at an electronics retailer that she planned to work after completing high school. So, you know, she was very focused, no-nonsense type of deal, like, Yeah, she knew where she was going. She was ambitious. Yeah, she was focused. Hiroshi Miyano was 17 years old. He also went to the same school as Junko. He told everyone that he was a part of the lower ranks of the Yakuza, which basically means the Japanese Mafia. Uh, The Japanese Mafia have, like, a reputation of being, like, really cruel and like outlandishly violent like they're just they bring violence to like a whole new level of creativity miano was a bully and just an all-around arrogant asshole that bragged about his connections i think we all know someone like that yeah yeah (laughs) he had a group of friends who were just as garbage as he was among them were Nobuharu Minato, Joe Ogura, and Yusashi Watanabe. Furata had caught the attention of Miyano at school, so he decided to ask her out on a date. Junko politely declined. This infuriated Miyano and began and he began to scheme on how he could exact revenge on her for turning him down. The crime. On november twenty fifth, nineteen eighty eight, Furata was riding her bicycle home from her part-time job. On this evening, Miano and Minato were looking, lurking the area with the intention of robbing and raping women. That's literally what they did for fun. Jesus Christ. Like they were aficionados, if you will. Like this is... This was their pastime. Like They always did this. Several sources state... Oh, I guess I just said that. Several sources state that this was a regular recreational activity for them. But yes, they spotted Furata heading home. So Miyano gave Minato orders to go pretend to be a villain. Minato kicked Furata's bike from under her and ran off. So Miyano pulls up on his motorcycle to play the role of the hero. He offered to walk her home and Furata agreed. Before she knew it, he had led her to an abandoned warehouse. There, he used his connections to the Yakuza to scare her, and then he raped her. Afterwards, he took her to a hotel and raped her again. From the hotel, Miyano called Minato and his other friends, Joe Ogura and Yusashi Watanabe, and bragged to them about the rape. Ogura reportedly asked Miyano to keep her in captivity in order to allow numerous people to sexually assault her. The group had a history of gang rape and had recently kidnapped and raped another girl who was released afterwards. Around 3 a.m., Miyano took Furata to a nearby park where Minato, Ogura, and Watanabe were waiting. They had gleaned her home address from a notebook in her backpack and told her that they knew where she lived and that Yakuza members would kill her family if she attempted to escape. She was overpowered by the four by the four males and taken to Minato's house in the ISA district of Adachi where she was gang raped. 
The house, which was owned by Minato's parents, soon became their regular gang hangout. On the 27th of November, Furata's parents contacted the police about their daughter's disappearance. In order to discourage further investigation, the kidnappers coerced her into calling her mother. She was forced to say that she had run away but was safe and staying with a friend. Furata was also forced to ask her mother to stop the police investigation into her disappearance. When Manato's parents and brother were present, Furata was forced to pose as the girlfriend of, of one of the kidnappers. They let her later drop this pretense when it became clear that Minato's parents would not report them to the police. The Minato stated that they did not intervene because they were aware of Miyano's Yakuza connections and feared retaliation and because their own son was increasingly violent towards them. Minato's brother was also aware of the situation but did nothing to prevent it. So let's get into the torture. The torture lasted a total of 44 days. She was starved and raped over 500 times by hundreds of males who were invited over. The kidnappers told all their friends that they had a girl captive. And in the end, hundreds of people knew about it. Like, you know, hundreds of people raped her and even more people knew about it. But no one did anything. She was fed cockroaches and made to, made to drink her own urine. She was forced to get naked and masturbate in front of people. They burned her privates with cigarette lighters and cigarettes. They set off fireworks from her ears, vagina, and mouth. They hung her from the ceiling and used her as a punching bag. She was forced to sleep on their second-story balcony on freezing nights and also in their freezer. They tore off her left nipple with pliers and stabbed her breasts with sewing needles. She was forced to dance and sing while being beaten with golf clubs. Her face was disfigured beyond recognition. She would start convulsing and pass out. Her captors thought that that she was faking these, so they would dunk her head in water until she came to. Her nose was so full of congealed blood that she could only breathe out of her mouth. She would eventually vomit whenever they gave her water or food because her body would reject it because of the damage and she would be punished by getting beaten. She was unable to urinate properly. She couldn't get up and walk. So she would crawl to the bathroom and her captor said it took her over an hour to make it to the bathroom because she was so weak. She couldn't control her bowels or bladder anymore, so more beatings ensued. Her captors say that she eventually started to smell like rot, so they lost sexual interest in her, you know, once that started to happen. Koichi Ihara was a male who was brought to the house and bullied into raping Farata. After he left the Minato household, he told his brother about the incident. His brother subsequently told their parents, who contacted the police. Two police officers were dispatched to the Minato house. However, they were informed that there was no girl inside. The police officers declined an invitation to look around the house, 
believing the invitation alone was sufficient proof that there was nothing to nothing to be found so what happened is they went and like the parents were like oh there's no girl in here you can come inside and check if you want and so they they were like oh well if there was a girl they wouldn't be inviting us so they were like all right fine so they left both officers faced considerable backlash from the community whether that means that they were fired or not is i don't know um but if it's anything like here in the U.S., they probably just got a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Had they indeed searched the house and located Ferrata, her ordeal would have only lasted 16 days. And she may well have recovered from her injuries. Oh, I forgot I wrote this. The two officers were fired for failing to follow procedure. I think they should have been charged. Yeah, of course. Ferrata tried several times to escape, and she also called the police once. She was caught by Miano before she could say anything. The cops called back, but Minato answered and apologized for the mistake. As punishment for calling the police, he doused her legs with lighter fluid and lit her on fire. On January 4, 1989, Hiroshi Miano was very angry over losing a game of Mahjong and went over to Minato to take his anger out. He went over to Minato's house to take his anger out on Ferrata. The four males beat her with barbells, dropped weights on her, made her stand up so they could beat her legs. She lost her balance and fell on a stereo that was sitting on a table and she broke both the stereo and the table. When that happened, pus started to ooze out of her wounds. So the males wrapped their hands with plastic bags and sealed them at the wrist so they can continue to beat her and not get their hands dirty. They finally doused her completely, like entirely, with lighter fluid and lit her on fire. She tried to put herself out until she became responsive, unresponsive and finally died. And then they left her there. That whole situation that day lasted two hours. So, you know, the the males left and Minato's brother contacted Minato later and told him that Ferrata looked like she was dead. Uh, the group didn't want to catch a murder case, so they devised a plan to dispose of Furata's body. After Junko Furata died, the four males put her body in a 50-gallon drum that they filled with concrete and disposed of it in a park. Now, what's crazy about this, you know, in addition to everything else, the discovery of Junko's murder was entirely accidental. On January 23, 1989, Hiroshi Miyano and Joe Ogura were arrested for the gang rape of the 19 of a 19 year old woman that they had kidnapped back in December. So like I said, this is just what they do. On the 29th of March, two police officers came to interrogate them while they were, you know, under arrest because women's underwear had been found at their addresses. During the interrogation, one of the officers led Miano into believing that police were aware of a murder committed by Miano. 
Thinking that Joe Agura had confessed to the crimes against Ferrata, Miyano told the police where to find Ferrata's body. The police were initially puzzled by the confession, as they had been referring to the murder of a different woman and her seven-year-old son that had occurred nine days before Ferrata's abduction. So they were trying to pin, like, other cases to them. Yeah. But that particular case remains unsolved to this day. Hiroshi Miyano simply unwittingly turned himself and his friends in. Despite their unspeakable torture of Junko Furata, none of them even bothered to fake remorse. The police found the drum containing Furata's body the following day. She was identified via fingerprints. On the 1st of, uh, the 1st of April... In 1989, Joe Ogura was arrested for a separate sexual assault and subsequently re-arrested for Ferrata's murder. The arrest of Yusashi Watanabe, Nobuharu, Minato, and Minato's brother followed. The autopsy showed that her brain had reduced in size and her eardrums were also destroyed. Apparently, she was also pregnant. The rest of the details were revealed to the public, like how she was tortured. Ferrata's mother had to undergo psychiatric therapy due to a mental breakdown after learning everything that her daughter endured. Sentencing. The four boys, males, pled guilty to committing bodily injury that resulted in death rather than murder. The court chose to seal the identities of the four boys, males, as they were legally juveniles at the time of the crime. However, a few journalists discovered their identities and published their names and their pictures, believing that they did not deserve anonymity. Hiroshi Miyano, the alleged leader of the crime and also the guy whose multiple romantic advances were turned down by Junko, was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was 18 year, years old at the time of sentencing. He was released in 2009. Miyano's mother reportedly sent Furata's parents 50 million yen, which in U.S. money is $425,000, um, and they had to sell their home for that. Nobuharu Minato whose home was the location where Junko Furata was tortured and murdered, he was sentenced to five to nine years in prison. He was 15 years old at the time. Yusashi Watanabe received five to seven years in prison. He was 17. Joe Oguro served eight years in juvenile facility before his release in 99. He was 17 at the time. Minato's parents and brother were not charged. Minato's mother had a grudge against the Furat Mr. Furata, who said that he had upset his son's life. And he seems to have been leaking words of slander against the victims. The dude who did it? The parents of the kid who was involved in this. I've been talking shit about the yeah, you know the parents. Mm -hmm, you know the the parents that knew about all this. Yeah, who should have been charged? He's, yeah, he's the one talking shit about the victim's parents and saying that they're the ones that ruined his son's life. Little scumbags. It is believed that the four boys, 
males, affiliation of the Yakuza crime gang contributed to their lenient sentence. Oh, so the judge was afraid as well? uh, I think they they were all sort of like strongholded, Mm. you know, or strong-armed. What's the term? Yeah, I know what you're saying. They all eventually changed their name for what? I don't know, especially if if they're supposed to have Yakuza connections, why would you bother? That's so weird, right? Yeah, yeah. That was the one thing that I thought was weird. (sighs) And I'm going to expose them. Minato, then using the first name Nabuharo, is now Shinji Minato. Hiroshi Miyano is now using the surname Yokoyama. Joe Ogura is now Joe Kumisaku. And the Watanabe kid, I couldn't find anything on him. Um, all three, what well, three out of the four, will continue to have run-ins with the law because they're just garbage. So where are they now? Hiroshi Miyano today. Well, Hiroshi Miyano recently... Um, got into some shit in 2019 um he got arrested and this is what happened um according to the indictment Monato allegedly beat a 32 year old male um with the on his right shoulder with a metal baton he also allegedly slashed the victim's throat with a knife According to police, the victim was transported to a hospital in a conscious state with light injuries. Upon his arrest, Minato denied the allegations, saying, I beat and hit him, but I did not intend to kill. Um, and then the defendant's testimony changed at the opening of his trial. It's not correct that I beat the victim in the right shoulder with the baton. He told the court in commenting on the revised charge of inflicting injury. However, the defendant did acknowledge stabbing the victim. But later on, he changed his story and said he didn't beat him and he didn't stab him. Like after he admitted to everything. So first he said, no, I beat him. Then he said, no, I didn't beat him. I stabbed him. And they said, oh, wait, no, I didn't do anything. No, he said, yeah, I beat him and I stabbed him. But then and then he was like. No, I didn't stab him. And then he was like, nah, I didn't. I did stab him and I didn't beat him either. And then <laughs> he's an idiot. And then um, and then he was all like. Uh, the judge was like, are you saying that you did not slash the victim in the neck with a knife and that and that the wound for argument's sake was a fabrication by the doctor? Because he was like, I have medical records saying that you know what i'm saying yeah, that yeah. this no, shit no, did happen paramedic did that yeah so the you know the judge asked him this and monato said more likely the police than a doctor like as if he was being set up yeah 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 like what an idiot <laughs> i would set him up if i was a police officer yeah all right so nobaharu monato After Nobuharu Minato was released, he changed his name to Shinji and moved in with his mother. In 2006, he he was married to he married someone to from Romania, and had a daughter. Later, his wife divorced him and gained custody of their daughter. 
A blogger described that despite being unable to stay out of legal trouble at the age of 45, he is still well protected by the juvenile law. Joe Ogura. After his release from the juvenile facility in August of 99, Joe Ogura changed his name to Joe Kamisuka, Kamisaku and boasted about his role in the kidnapping, rape, and torture of Furata. He squandered his father's savings, which was supposed to be given to Furata's parents, buying luxury products and living an extravagant life. Agura's mother allegedly vandalized Junko Furata's grave, stating that Furata had ruined her, si- her son's life. Agura married a Chinese woman at some point and later divorced her. So far, Yasushi Watanabe has been the only one who is not yet reoffended, and there isn't much news about him. Was he the the youngest one of the group? No, a girl was the youngest one. But yeah, so like uh, Mayanu, um, he's like, like after he got released, he was just like driving around and like bmws and taking his friends to like strip clubs and all sorts of shit like just living his life life. yeah but they all basically carried on as if nothing happened yeah so yeah um so my my sources are new metomedia.com nsvrc.org wikipedia quora.com ranker.com psychologytoday.com and that's it right well that was horrific yeah. But I actually am really glad that you covered it. Me uh, too. I'm glad to cover this because, like, I think it's, like, yeah, like, we're here for, like, for a break uh, from reality. But I feel, I strongly believe that if you have means of a platform and you have an audience, it's really important to bring into light these things that, you know, that we can just forget. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like it's not for um, justice or anything. It's just that this happened to this person. These people did it and the world needs to know. Right. And then not just that, because it's like you get caught up in like the humdrum of life, you know, and you sort of get desensitized and detached from what is actually going on in the world because people are just so like, you know, focused on, you know, going to work or going out and going out on a date or, you know, their own personal lives. And they get so detached from what's actually going on in the world that you just you start to believe that these these things are not real. You know, that this couldn't happen to me yeah, or yeah. someone I know. You know what I'm saying? But it's out there. But it's out there. True horror for our first episode in October. And actually, no, it's our second episode in October. And it's episode number 10 as well. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, well, I went a slightly different route with my story, and it is a, a, it's a lot lighter. So this story might anger some people, particularly in the UFO community. Oh, shit. But I had to cover all bases 
because like that if it was a ghost story that mm-hmm. I had found had been debunked. And I'm not saying that this one is debunked. I'm just saying that there is um, explanations. There are explanations that have been carried out by professionals and it does seem to... <laughs> anyway, so I'm sorry. But that's not to shit on the story either. If if it, if it's true... If it's yeah. a good if it's a good UFO story, it's a good UFO yeah, story. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. My sources are TasmanianTimes.com, Rexite.eu, AllThingsInteresting.com, The Skeptical Inquirer, Adelaide Now, and RecordSearch.naa.gov.au. That's the official Australian government. Um, like Hall of Records. Oh. Because I wanted to back up what I was reading. Because it gets pretty pretty in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have written... I did this these notes a couple of weeks ago. So forgive me if I don't seem familiar with them. But I also have written down here... Um, a YouTube video that I watched claiming lots of... Quote, mysterious events. Unquote. But when I tried to fact check them... Um, I didn't find any of that info. Like wrecksite.eu actually has a list of every ship that has been wrecked going back like Oh wow. Yeah, and like inventory people lost. Yeah, yeah. Right. Have you ever heard of spatial disorientation? No. A graveyard spiral? No. The base straight triangle? No. An aeroplane? Yes. Me neither. (laughs) An aeroplane. (laughs) All right. Let's learn together. Okay. So, the Bay Strait is the stretch of water that separates the states of Victoria and Tasmania in southeastern Australia. The term was first used in 1978 after the mysterious disappearance of Frederick Valentich. And I think that's how you pronounce the name. I did just Google it. And that's what Google said. But I think I'm just going to call him Freddy. Okay. For my own personal benefit. Sounds good. The area already had a bad name long before that, although not for any weird or supernatural reasons. I guess that just means dodgy weather or something. Okay. You know, it was like just known for... I looked into it and it was all sorts of like because of the position of it and the prevailing winds and the tide is like opposing. It just causes like... It's a shitstorm of like rough seas. Okay. And bad weather. The Bay Strait itself has an average depth of 50 meters or 160 feet for our Americans. Apparently, that's quite shallow. Seems very fucking deep to me. Anything yeah. over two meters is like ridiculous. Um, and it's approximately 330 by 200 kilometers or 190 by 120 miles. So not gigantic. Um the sea conditions are unpredictable, especially when strong winds occur. Okay. And I have also written in my notes, I'm not a fucking weatherman. <laughs> it's very busy as commercial ships and regular ships, I guess. Wait a minute. Don't we know a weatherman? Um, We know somebody who works for the weather department. Oh, okay. I think. Anyway, it's very busy as it's as commercial ships and just like regular ships or something. Mm-hmm. There's different types of ships like dinghies i think bigger than a dinghy okay smaller than a commercial ship (laughs) anything in between god only fucking knows i'm not andy bernard either (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, they they use this route um, to pass from the west to the east coast, and most of the air traffic between Tasmania and Australia flies over at least some part of the Bass Strait. And I think it's the Bass Strait and not the Bass Strait. From 1838 to 1840, at least seven vessels were lost with no survivors and only the wreckage of three of these were identified. 1958, British warship HMS Sappho disappeared with over 100 crew. And I think I do go into more detail about some of these than others. Uh, 1901, the SS Federal disappeared with 31 crew. And they actually just found the wreck in 2019. 1906, SS Ferdinand Fischer, a German cargo ship, disappeared. In 1920, the SS Amelia J, carrying coal and a crew of 12, was last seen on September 5th. HMAS Swordsman was sent out to search, and while they were searching another ship, the SS Southern Cross also disappeared. A military plane, possibly two, because I read conflicting articles, was which was also taking part in the search, never returned to base. This is all in one fucking day. Like, so this is just a big black hole. More or less. The SS Southern Cross was located wrecked on Kings Island, but the plane or planes and the SS Amelia J were never seen again. Apparently, strange lights were seen over the strait that day. 1934, an airliner named Miss Hobart went missing. It was a four-engine plane. And the reason why I mention that is because the odds of all engines failing are like slim to none. Mm. And it could fly, I'm assuming, with two of the engines knocked out, you know. And the plane was also designed to be able to glide in the event of an emergency. So... They should have been all right, like landing in water mm-hmm. or getting to where they were going. Maybe I don't fucking know. So there was 12 people on board, three women, a baby and eight men. One of these men, Reverend Hubert Warren, had left ahead of his wife and two children who were due to get a steamboat a few weeks later. Uh, he was going to he was going to take over a new parish. He had given his son a crystal radio set which instilled a love of science and led him to invent the black box flight recorder. This is just a nice little What is that? Fun fact. Uh, there's a black box flight recorder on every single plane. Ever. Oh, okay. I don't know when it was introduced but it records everything in the cockpit. Oh, like all the conversations and stuff? Yeah. From oh, the that's time. interesting. Yeah, and it's like you can't destroy it, or so they say. Mm. So that's why the whole argument is like, well, why not just build a whole plane out of the black box? <laughs> but anyway. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the pilots was an ex-RAAF and ex-Canadian Air Force. The RAAF is the Royal Australian Army. Something. As fuck. Army as fuck. <laughs> Royal Army as <is> fuck. <laughs> Uh, Royal Australian Air Force (laughs) which I knew so yeah he had flown for two separate fucking air forces he would have known what to do surely a certain YouTube video said the crew reported 
an aerial machine coming towards them and sounds of another plane which stopped all of a sudden. And the last message received at 10.20 stated, Over Redondo Island, all's well. But that was only in that one particular YouTube video and I didn't find that anywhere else. Can you translate that for me? Over Redondo Island. Oh, Redondo Island. Yeah. Okay. That Yeah. The Australian uh, pronunciations or uh, Australian words are fucking, they're out there. Yeah, it's a little difficult for me to understand. And get ready for some fantastic Australian accent butchering. Okay. okay. 1935. A cargo plane crashed into the sea near Flinders Island with three crew and two passengers lost. Their bodies never found. Um, they reported to Tasmania Island to say that they were approaching and then all of a sudden just nothing. During World War II, several military planes were lost during exercises such as low-level bombing practice. At 1922, a fighter pilot flew out to investigate reports of strange lights made by fishermen as he flew, a huge bronze disc appeared out of the clouds, flew beside him for a few seconds, and then just disappeared in front of him. 1944, a strange dark shadow appeared and flew next to a military plane for 20 minutes before pissing off in a burst of speed and vanished. 1972, a plane flown by Brenda Heen and Max Price disappeared on a flight from Tasmania to Canberra as part of protests against the flooding of Lake Pedder for a hydroelectricity scheme. Um, and the only reason why I mentioned that is apparently there was... Some people believe that, that the plane was sabotaged by the people who they were going to protest against. Mm. I didn't get too far into it. I just thought it was worth mentioning. Right, which brings us to October 21st, 1978. 20-year-old Frederick Valentich, Freddy, left Victoria's Moorabbin Airport. Again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of these things right. Moorabbin? Moorabbin? I'm saying I'm saying Moorabbin. Moorabbin? Moorabbin? More cowbell. <laughs> um, yeah, so he left... Victoria's Moorabbin Airport at 6.19, piloting a fully fueled, rented, single-engine Cessna 182L. So I managed to find the official file that had been lost from 1983 to 2004. So I didn't personally locate this as, like, groundbreaking evidence or anything. But the dude who did do all the hard work um, found it and has left some very clear instructions I think maybe on the Skeptical Inquirer's website. I'm not sure where. But on one of those sources that I have anyway. So the actual transcript has all of the official jargon and codes, etc. So, but the guys at Skeptical Inquirer have put together a slightly abridged version. And here it is. So, Freddy. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Roby. No known traffic. So from now on, it's just going to be V and R. How the fuck are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is going to lose us some listeners. 
I am. Uh, it seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. Oh. What type of aircraft is it? I cannot confirm. It is four bright... It, se it seems to me like landing lights. The aircraft has just pa passed over me at least a thousand feet above. Roger. And is it is it a large aircraft? Confirm. Uh, unknown due to the speed it's travelling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? <laughs> it's like I'm talking to somebody else. <laughs> no known aircraft in the vicinity. It's approaching right now from due east towards me. Silence for two seconds. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times at a speed that I could not identify. Roger, what is your actual level? Uh, my level is four and a half thousand. Four, five, zero, zero. And confirm, you cannot identify the aircraft. Affirmative. Roger, stand by. It's not an aircraft, it is... Silence for two seconds. Can you describe the aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. Silence for three seconds. Cannot identify more than that it has such speed. Silence for three seconds. It is before me right now, Melbourne. And how large would the uh, object be? It seems like it's stationary. What I'm doing right now is orbiting, and the thing is just orbiting on top of me also. It's got a green light and sort of metallic. Like, it's all shiny on the outside. Silence for five seconds. It's just vanished. Would you know what kind of aircraft I've got? Is it a military aircraft? Confirm the uh, aircraft has just vanished. Say again. Is the aircraft still with you? It's, uh, no. Silence for two seconds. Now approaching from the southwest, the engine is, is rough idling. I've got it set at 23, 24, and the thing is coughing. Roger. What are your intentions? My intentions are uh, to go to King Island, uh, Melbourne. That strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. Silence for two seconds. It is hovering and it, it's not an aircraft. Silence for 17 seconds. Open microphone with audible, unidentified staccato noise. End of transcript. So I don't know how long all that just took me to actually read. But the whole uh, transcript began at 7.06pm and ended at 712 and again, this is like military transcript, so it's down to the second. It's actually seven, twelve, forty-nine. Uh, and I apologise to any Australians that I've offended with that brutal accent. No, I'm sure they're like, yeah, we sound like that. <laughs> um. So yeah, communication ended at seven, twelve, forty-nine. What happened to the guy? I'm gonna get into it. Okay. This is just the beginning. Okay. An intensive air, land and sea search was carried out until October 25th. So that was four days from the actual event. Um, but no trace of the plane or pilot was found. Whoa. Wait, the one that was talking or the one that they were looking for? 
Like the weird one. No, no, they were looking for Valentich and they never found him. Freddy? Freddy, yeah. Oh, what? So, May 1982, four years later, the Bureau of Air and Safety Investigation released its findings stating that, quote, the reason for disappearance of the aircraft has not been determined, but the outcome was presumed fatal. So let's talk about Freddy. Okay. He was 20 years old with around 150 hours flight time. Apparently that's not much. I thought like, fucking hell, that's loads. Yeah. Like he's flown for weeks. But um, yeah, it's not a lot. So he had just received his class four instrument uh, license, I guess, which allowed him to fly at night, but only in visual meteorological conditions. So no clouds, I guess full moon. He had twice been rejected by the RAAF due to inadequate education. He was studying part-time for a commercial pilot's license, but had failed all five of his commercial license exam subjects twice. And only the month before had failed three more of those subjects again. Wow. Tough break. Yeah, but he was like... Flying was his thing. He was like, I'm going to be a pilot and that's it. So he had also received a warning for straying into a control zone in Sydney. Um, He had flown into a cloud deliberately twice, which is a big no-no for new pilots and for which prosecution was being considered at the time. So I never knew this, but... It makes sense, especially back then. I guess like nowadays we have a lot more technology. I fucking hope anyway in air airplanes. Traffic control. And yeah, traffic control. But yeah, flying into a cloud. Like within ninety seconds, I'm sure I go into it down here somewhere. You lose all bearings. What's up? What's down? What's uh, east and west? Like that's crazy. Yeah. Or sorry, it's within ninety seconds you're dead. What? Yeah, like you have crashed in those ninety seconds. If you fly into a cloud. Yeah. Wait, so no planes, no jets are supposed to fly in clouds. No, I I think this is, you know, like small, like novice aircraft. Because well, obviously, yeah, oh. those big ass like things are, but they're self-flown and shit. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, and according to his father, Guido, he was also a big believer in UFOs and had supposedly seen one moving very fast away from him. Mm-hmm. He was such an ardent believer that he was actually worried about being attacked by UFOs. That's like, crazy. On a, that was one of his main concerns with flying. He's like, shit, what if, what yeah. if I get attacked? Poor guy, though, because he's like, I'm going to fucking be a pilot. You know? He's like, these aliens, they <laughs> yeah, might get they... me. Like, yeah. they, they might get me, but I'm going to be a fucking pilot. Yeah, fuck it. I'll fuck then, with an alien. And then now he now he's gone after he saw an alien. Yeah. So here are some theories. Some people proposed that he had staged his own disappearance, saying that, one, he had more than enough fuel to travel an extra 800 kilometers than the point where he was at when he was talking back to um, Melbourne. He had given two different reasons for flying to Kings Island in the first place. One was to go and pick up some friends, and the other was to go and pick up some crayfish i fucking love crayfish yeah <laughs> wait they eat crayfish in australia i guess I so know that 
Nice. I guess so. Nice. I thought they just ate babies. What? I guess we learn something new every day. <laughs> okay. If they weren't mad before, they're going to be mad yeah. now. <laughs> oh, we're learning all sorts about a strange country. No, I've actually been to Australia. It was quite nice. Didn't you say a koala attacked you? No, hell, the koala. It was lovely. It was cool. Oh, maybe that's just like, wouldn't it be crazy? Oh, I think it's kind of common. Like, not as a joke. Like, yeah. falling koalas. Yeah. No look, shit. Look that up. I'm going to have to edit out so much of this. Um, like black mambas but fuzzy koalas yeah but they have like sharp claws yeah well that's how they stay in the trees right yeah i guess and that's how they catch babies to eat them yeah <laughs> <laughs> eucalyptus you can lick this <laughs> um right <laughs> go on so yeah to go pick up some friends or alternatively to go and pick up some crayfish cool he also never informed the KI or the Kings Island airport that he was going there. Hmm. Apparently, Melbourne police received reports of a light aircraft making a mysterious landing not far from Cape Otway at the same time as Freddie's disappearance. Another theory is that Freddie became disoriented and was flying upside down. Yeah, so if this was the case, the lights he saw would have been his own reflected on the water. He then would have crashed into the water. However, the model Cessna he was flying had a gravity-fed fuel system, so he couldn't have flown upside down for very long. Which kind of goes back because we know that that particular transcript was at least six minutes long. You know, um, suicide was another possibility, and I don't think that this is adequate enough information, but. It was ruled out because interviews with doctors and colleagues who knew him said no, he would never do that. But anyway. So the Skeptical Inquirer suggests that in addition to logging more flying hours, he may have actively been trying to see more UFOs. Like just trying to get out, hey, yeah, fair enough, to get more hours on his logbook or whatever they use, I don't know. And also just doing a bit of like UFO hunting i i don't think that's why would he go hunting for them if that's his main concern you know what i'm saying that doesn't make well, sense. I, I guess it's like why would i go looking in weird haunted places for ghosts when yes i'm terrified of being haunted by a ghost oh you are yeah i don't want a fucking ghost in here oh i just i thought you might want it no you know what i mean like it's one of those he's well, just curious he just wants to see what's out there kind of thing Huh, I guess. I guess in my head, I'm like, I'm terrified of sharks, and I would not be in a shark cage if sharks were my concern. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, if this is true, and we know that he was a true believer, he would have been inclined to believe anything he saw up there was a UFO. The night he disappeared was a clear night, which it had to be for him to be allowed to fly. Mm -hmm. We're covering a lot of bases here, just again. So... Venus, Mars, Mercury, and Antares. I think that's how you say that. Taurus? Antares. A-N-T-A-R-E-S. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, they're all very bright stars. They were all visible that night in the shape of an elongated diamond. Mm -hmm. The green light that he reported could have actually been his own navigation light on the right wing tip 
or possibly its reflection in the glass of his cockpit. Spatial disorientation is defined as the inability of a pilot to correctly interpret aircraft altitude, or sorry, aircraft attitude, altitude, or airspeed in relation to the Earth or other points of reference. Did you say attitude? Yes, I said okay. attitude. All right. And I watched a really informative video, mm-hmm. and it, like this is true, from a pilot instructor or like teacher, I guess. He made the pilot in training close his eyes and keep flying straight. Okay, so as if you're driving a car down a straight road. That sounds safe. Close your eyes. Within a second, he was in a downward spiral. Right now, I'm not talking like you know, like you meant like a depression. <laughs> Within seconds, he was like, "Damn it! Why did I have to buy He's that second to, house?" <laughs> like listening to the care, yeah, <laughs> the pesh mode, Radiohead on in the background. But yeah, anyway, so within seconds he was in, or within a second he was in a downward spiral. Like literally, almost the first thing he did was just tilt to the right, closed his eyes, and you see his hand just turned to the right. That's crazy. But in his head, he's correcting himself. You know what I mean? Um, So anyway, this is called a graveyard spiral. And it usually happens when a pilot enters a cloud. If they don't turn around immediately, they'll crash in a maximum of 90 seconds, like I said earlier. Tilted horizon illusion happens when the sun has gone down, but still brightens part of the horizon, while the rest of it gets gradually darker farther away. This imbalance of lighting can cause the horizon to appear tilted so that in compensating by leveling the wings the pilot inadvertently begins not to orbit but to spiral downward again at first slowly and then with increasing speed so like that when this dude in the video closed his eyes like it it wasn't like a mad corkscrew spiral or anything it was just that he was gradually turning right but you could see it like And so Fred was concentrating so hard on the UFO lights above him that he wasn't paying any attention to his instrument panel, which obviously is there for this exact reason. Also, when in a spiral, the increased G-force would result in decreased fuel flow due to the gravity-fed fuel system and also would be the reason why the aircraft would have seemed like it was orbiting when in fact it was stationary and the plane was actually the one going around in circles. So th- this is if Skeptical Inquirer is right or are right. He was looking straight up at stars. And while he was looking up, went into a graveyard spiral, didn't realize it. And the plane started to do big circles. But to him, it looked like it was orbiting him. Yeah, it was orbiting him. And the one thing I will say to doubt the Skeptical Inquirer is that he did say in the transcript, like he was able to look back at like his, I think it's his revs, to say like, no, 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 like I'm holding the engine at like 23 or 2400 revs or whatever. So he was paying some attention to it. But again, if he was that excited, maybe he just looked down quickly. He's like, no, 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 I'm fine. And, you know. Mm-hmm. So in July 1983, 
an engine cowl flap because I know what that is fucking I know all this shit a thing yeah I'm not talking through my arse wash the shore on Flinders Island the Bureau of Air Safety Investigation noted that the part has been identified and the part has been identified as having come from a Cessna 182 aircraft between a certain range of serial numbers which included Freddy's Mm. aircraft the green light now I don't know what's the correct pronunciation of this word is whether it's ufologists or ufologists i think it's ufologists it is right yeah. okay and i'm pretty sure they get really offended if you say it the other way probably. i mean probably ufologists have speculated that extraterrestrials either destroyed freddy's aircraft or abducted him asserting that some individual individuals reported seeing an erratically moving green light in the sky and that he was in a steep dive at the time Ufologists believe these accounts are significant because of the green light mentioned in Freddy's radio transmissions. The group Ground Saucer Watch, based in Phoenix, Arizona, claims that photos taken that day by plumber Roy Manifold. I just realized now that that's this guy's name. That's hilarious. That's Roy like, Manifold? Yeah, that's like, oh, this is my mechanic, John Carr. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> All right. Sorry, Mr. Manifold. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who makes my pizza is Tony Pepperoni. <laughs> <laughs> so Roy, anyway, took photos that day. And they say that they show a fast moving object exiting the water near Cape Otway Lighthouse. According to UFO writer Jerome Clark, Ground Saucer Watch argued that they showed, quote, a bona fide unknown flying object of moderate dimensions apparently surrounded by a cloud-like vapor slash exhaust residue, unquote. Although the pictures were not clear enough to identify the object. Now, I did see the pictures and I, I think that I have them saved. I'll try and find them. I'm a big want-to-be believer in all of these things like especially like ghost photos and stuff like that i love them this picture is bullshit like i'm not saying that it's not a ufo but that description of where is it hold on i just lost it okay yeah a bona fide unknown flying object of moderate dimension it's it's a blur on a piece of paper Mm. okay and it doesn't look like it's like bursting out of the fucking water with cloud vapor and all this shit yeah it doesn't it look i don't i'm not saying it's not could be but to me it looks like a smudge on the photo hmm. a witness on the ground who described having seen a green light just above freddie's plane had not mentioned that aspect of his story at the time however many years later after the green light was made public he did mention the detail but he is only identified by a pseudonym so the people have tried to hunt him down to, you know, kind of suss it out. But nevertheless, he said, in the words of his interviewers, that, quote, its color was similar to the navigation lights on an airplane, as he was looking at this airplane yeah. that I'm sure had navigation lights. Um, if the Cessna was indeed close enough to the land as to be seen by the man and his two nieces, there is a simple explanation. The airplane's attitude, a steep angle of bank, 
was such that its right wing tip was up and so its green navigation light appeared above the Cessna, as the witness stated. The light was positioned like it was riding on top of the airplane. That's a quote mm. from him. And it kept a constant position, according to the witnesses. But again, there are problems with the main witnesses' descriptions. As his interviewers acknowledge his, quote, recollection of the angular size of the airplane's light lights is too large by perhaps several orders of magnitude. Incidentally, misreadings by amateur writers have now converted Freddy's green light into multiple green lights and all sorts of fanciful stories and different articles that I've like that's why I was actually really glad when I found the skeptical inquirer mm-hmm. skeptic skeptic inquirer thank you because obviously then I had the skeptical argument mm-hmm. but it also gave me kind of like a groundwork to go off and then I had the actual transcript to read and be like okay yeah no he never said this he didn't say this yeah and yeah so anyway that's the end of in my opinion he was abducted by aliens yeah because you just want to believe you know because <laughs> you're a big wanna believer wanna believer yeah no honestly i I do think that the skeptical inquirer are probably right yeah but there's a little glint Look, of hope inside me i i don't think he got abducted i think because I, I think either his plane got destroyed by a UFO or he just crashed. Yeah, I, I think he definitely just crashed. He was an inexperienced yeah. uh, pilot and stuff but, like that. But I don't think he was abducted. No, I don't think so either. Um, but that doesn't explain all the other weird experiences by people. And there does seem to be a lot of interaction between the Royal Australian Air Force and, like, fishermen and locals and stuff like that. They do take these sightings seriously. And they have no explanation for a lot of these, like, mysterious lights. There's talks of, uh, like, lights just bursting out of the sea and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Mm. That's my story for this week. All right. And uh, Poor Freddy. R.I.P. Freddy. Poor L. Freddy. Oh, shit, we need to do a listener story. <laughs> so do you want me to read this one? Yes. Okay, I'm going to read this one now. Username, either difference 20. Okay. It's called, I believe in a thing called love. Just listen to the rhythm of my heart. No, it's called, I believe the ghost of a suicide victim tried to get me to kill Jesus. myself. Fucking hell, talk about setting us up. <laughs> You better keep that in. I will, yes, definitely. That was beautiful. (laughs) I shared this story in a comment in a Ask Reddit post. Then I realized it would probably be appreciated here. This is a true story. Trigger warning for suicide. My husband and I moved into an apartment a couple of years ago where I started to basically go insane. It always felt like someone was watching me and I became horrifically depressed. I would get so sad that sometimes I would even just spontaneously start crying and I often fantasized about hanging myself from the rafters in this one room. Oh. 
I would sometimes hear the rafters creaking and go in there, then imagine myself hanging in front of the window, being the cause of the creaking. I have been depressed in the past, but this was something on another level. I was seriously suicidal, despite being happily married and genuinely enjoying life before moving into this place. I thought that I had some serious mental illness that was emerging. Several months into living there, our neighbor, a sweet old woman that had lived in the building for decades, told us that a young woman hung herself from the rafters in that room in the late 80s. She was discovered by a man walking his dog who saw her hanging in front of the window. Our neighbor said that she was a very unfriendly person who kept to herself and never had anyone over. According to her, every single one of the female tenants in their mid-twenties to early thirties that have moved in since her suicide never renewed their leases past the first year and all seemed troubled, as she put it, while they lived there. I was 27 at the time, the exact same age she was when she died. My husband and I noped the fuck out of there pretty much immediately after we learned this. We still had a few months left on our lease, so we had to pay double rent during the time, but it was worth it. Literally the day we got out, my mental health recovered completely and has been back to normal ever since. I believe with all my heart that she was there in that apartment with us, and for whatever reason, she wanted me to repeat history and endure the same fate as her. Wow. That's interesting. I wonder, like, maybe she's just an empath, you know? Well, she said that, like, all the chicks oh, yeah. that lived there. And they didn't try and cleanse the house or anything like that. No. But they did do what everybody tells people to do, or everybody says they will do. Nope the fuck out of there. Yeah. But paid double rent and everything. That's that's commitment. I mean, I it must have been real serious. Huh? Yeah. All right, guys. That's uh, another episode of Weekly Creep. Hope you all enjoyed. Yeah. So next week won't be so heavy. But yeah. I got a good one lined up for you guys. Right on. Me too. So like I said, we will hopefully have an extra or one or two extra episodes because of Halloween. Yes. Um. So yeah, hopefully everybody's enjoying their Spooktober special so far. I see a lot of other podcasts are putting out extra content and stuff too. So it's fantastic. And yeah, same shit we say every week. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, fucking whatever they are. Uh, also, feel free to watch the YouTube videos. Also, yeah. send us your stories. Yeah, to send us your d- send us your stories now. Yeah, right now, right now, right now, right now. Stop driving. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so any of our DMs is fine, or if you feel it's a little bit easier to email us, send it to weeklycreep at gmail dot com. You might not be on the very next episode, but you will be either on an upcoming listeners episode or one in the very near future yeah all right so thanks everybody bye bye